And if you would turn in your copy of the scripture to Revelation chapter 3, we're in verse 7. If you've been with us over the last several weeks, you know this is part of Jesus talking to his churches. There, there are different letters that he's written. This one is to the church in Philadelphia. Revelation chapter 3, beginning verse 7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you've kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I'm coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This ends the reading of God's word. We're continuing our Sunday morning teaching series in the book of Revelation. It's a study where we are seeing how actively Jesus cares for his church, that he takes a personal interest in her, that he evaluates her, to see how healthy she is, and that he comes to her to encourage where she's doing well and to tell her, yeah, keep on going. And he also points out where she's not doing well and tells her that she has to change what she's been doing. Now today we come to a portion of the church that's doing really well, and it's not what you'd expect when you first take a look at these people. Church of Philadelphia, verse 8, has little power. They're not impressive to look at. They're not taking their city by storm. They're not running great ministries that people are flocking to. Instead, they've actually gotten beaten up a bit. Verse 10, they've had to endure patiently. That tells you that they've experienced some kind of persecution. Things are not going well for them in the city, and it's not just opposition from Roman society, but the church is at odds there with the Jewish population as well. As Christians, we believe that Jesus is God's Messiah who's been foretold through the Old Testament, the one that God promised to send to the Jewish people. And so the early Christians would often gather in the Jewish synagogues. They would come to hear Scripture, talk about faith in God, and then to share their hope in Jesus as God's promised deliverer. You read the book of Acts, however, and you realize that they were not always embraced because the people there didn't always embrace Christ. And so increasingly, the Christians were not welcome. They were treated as heretics. They were kicked out of the synagogues where they had formerly been welcomed. And reading between the lines, it seems like that's what's happened here to the Philadelphian Christians. They've been ostracized, marginalized from the people around them in a couple different ways. And so Jesus looks at me and says, I, I know that you have but little power. In other words, this church is probably not high on your list if you move into an area and you're looking for a church to join. 
If you drop in on them, you're quickly going to realize that they don't have a large worship service, one that just keeps growing because they're adding visitors. They don't have a high-quality, dynamic praise band. They don't have children and youth ministries that you would think would be good for your child or youth. They don't have a growing singles ministry. They don't have good small groups. They're not doing a whole lot of outreach to their community, not seeing lots of people come to Christ. They don't have any of that. And yet Jesus has nothing but good things to say to them. Nothing but good promises to give them. More promises to give to this church than he gives to any of the other six. Now why? Why is that? It's because down below everything else, they've been faithful to him. Verse 8, I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you've kept my word and have not denied my name. They are not successful in the eyes of the world. They have little power, but they've kept Christ's word. They've not denied his name. What does that mean? It means they've been faithful. And that matters more to Jesus than to all of the things that you and I might go and look for, more than all of the things that we could see, all of the things that we could measure. Now, why does God think that faithfulness is more important than success? And I realize as soon as I ask that question, I think, okay, maybe that's even the wrong way to ask the question. Maybe we need to recognize that in God's eyes, success is measured by faithfulness. That God defines success by how faithful we are, not by how large our congregation is or by how many things we're doing. Now, why does he look for faithfulness? Because faithfulness is a measure of which direction you're pointing in. It tells you whether you are pointed toward him or away from him, either toward the things that are important to him and or away from those things. And if you're pointed in the right direction, it means that you're going to use whatever power you have, whether that's a lot of power or a little bit of power, to move in the same direction that he is, that you're going to use that power to build the same kind of things that he's building. Whereas if you're pointed in a different direction, your power, great or small, is going to go into building a different kind of kingdom, into building something different from what Jesus is building. And so you can have a great big church, strong, powerful, dynamic ministries, but if it's not pointed in the same direction that Jesus is, you're actually going to oppose him. And the bigger and stronger you are, the more you will oppose what he's doing. And in that respect, you'll function like the people in verse 9 that John says claim to be Jews but are not. What's that mean? It means that these people are ethnically Jewish. But in rejecting Jesus as God's Messiah, they are rejecting God, which means from Jesus' perspective, they're not really God's people. That's why John calls them a synagogue of Satan. It's a synagogue that does get together and they discuss God's word, but they don't discuss the word in a way that actually leads to worshiping the one true God. Instead, they've joined forces with God's enemy as he persecutes God's people. And so what's important to Jesus is not how much power you have, but how you use what you have. Is it for the sake of Christ or is your power used for the sake of something else? And so what we need here at Renewal, what we need individually, 
is to adopt Jesus's criteria, his measuring rod of faithfulness over success. And I think this is really timely probably for a number of us. As I talk to us, I, I hear a number of us saying things like, man, you know, I, I'm kind of weak. I, I, I don't have a lot of spiritual power. I, I don't read my Bible. Here's the word, listen for it. Here, I don't read my Bible enough. I don't pray enough. Or we'll say the same thing from the other direction. I need to read my Bible more. I need to pray more. I need to be a better Christian. I'm not good enough. I need to do more. Now, what are we saying when we talk like that? We're saying that we've bought into the way that the world thinks. We've bought into the idea that size and volume and power are the critical measures of whether we're good followers of Christ or not. And Jesus comes along and he says, no, that's not what matters. What matters is the direction in which you use whatever size and volume and power that you have. Think about it this way. When Jesus hands out awards for people who run the race of life, that's the idea that you have there in verse 11. That's the crown that's there. It's a reference to the laurel leaf crown that was given out in athletic contests. So when Jesus hands out crowns, he's not simply looking for the fastest person. If you ran super fast, but you run in the wrong direction, you're not going to win the race. You can't win by going the wrong way. And so what's important to Jesus is not how hard you're able to run. What matters to him is the direction in which you run. So if you can run really fast in the right direction, Jesus has a crown for you. But he also gives crowns to those with little power, who don't have the athletic ability to run really fast. He gives crowns to those who what? Who walk in the right direction when that's all that they can do. Because what's important here is not how much power you have, but what you do with it, how faithful you are with what you have. Which means that Jesus hands out crowns to people who are not fast, but who can walk and who do so in the right direction. That means, though, then, that he also hands out crowns to other people. Because maybe you can't even walk. Maybe your upbringing crippled you. Maybe your family, your family dynamics damaged you, damaged how you see yourself, how you think about yourself, how you relate to others. Or maybe your society stacked the deck against you, held you back, oppressed you, mistreated you, taught other people that it was okay to mistreat you. And now with all of your upbringing and all of your experiences, man, it, it is such a struggle to live the Christian life. You read the Bible, and it's, it's hard to believe what God says about you. It's really hard to trust someone else. It's hard not to feel bitter, hard to reach out, hard to make yourself vulnerable, hard to try to love others. And so you look at yourself and say, I, I definitely can't run, not even sure that I can walk. What's Jesus saying here to this church? He says, I take all of that into account. And he hands out crowns to people who have little power, who do their best to crawl in the right direction. Or maybe your struggles are even worse. Maybe the challenges for you are not outside of you. Maybe they're more inside. 
Maybe it's your own body that cripples you. All of our bodies are broken in a broken world, but some are more broken than others. Some of our genetic makeup, some of our brain chemistries tempt us to sin. Don't make us sin, but they tempt us to sin. They, make, they tempt us to go away from Christ. Our brokenness might make it easier to sin, easier in ways that other people don't have to deal with. Some of us are so broken we, we can't even crawl. Or some of us have been so badly sinned against by others, victimized in ways that have attacked our most basic understandings of ourselves, ways that have destroyed any sense of dignity, any sense of self-worth, any sense of self-respect that we should have, ways that distort us deep down. And so we don't even have the strength to crawl. And we want to know, is there a crown for us? And this passage would say yes, because Jesus hands out crowns to people with little strength, people who can't crawl, people who what, who can fall in the right direction. He does that because it's not how much power you have, it's what you do with what you have that's important to him. And so the church in ancient Philadelphia, this small, persecuted, ostracized church with little power, gets the biggest commendation of any of the churches because they are pointed in the right direction. They're faithful to Christ. So if you're not a very impressive Christian, if you're someone like me who has a long way to go, and I'm not speaking hyperbolically, the longer I walk with Christ, the more I realize how good I am not. If you're like me, this letter then is what? It's for you. It's for us, renewal. Or at least it could be. Look around, you realize we're not very big, not very powerful, certainly not impressive. But what would it be like to have Jesus be as proud of us as he is of the Philadelphia church? He could be. This letter tells us about his heart that he wants to be. So if that's going to be true of us, we need to learn two things from this letter about faithfulness. We'll ask two questions this morning. First, faithful in what? What does Jesus look at when he's deciding if we're faithful, if we're pointed in the right direction? Faithful in what? And second, faithful for what? what what's the payoff of being faithful? Just two things this morning. Let's dive in. First, faithful in what? Go back to verse 8 again. I know that you have but little power, and yet... You have kept my word and have not denied my name. Two things Jesus looks at to see whether or not we've been faithful. One, do we keep his word? And two, have we not denied his name? It's kind of a double negative. I find it easier to turn that round. Have we acknowledged his name? Is it clear to others by what we say or by what we do that our first allegiance is to Christ? And because it's clear that we are loyal to him, is it clear that we care about what he has to say, that we keep his word? Now, this reference to his word takes us back to chapter 1, where the word of God is tied to the testimony of Christ. It's tied to Jesus as the fulfillment of everything that God has told us about himself. And that means if we're going to understand how to keep Christ's word, if we're going to understand how to keep the scripture, we need to have a sense of what God is trying to do as he speaks scripture to us. 
we need to have a sense that it, at its most basic, Scripture is what? It's God telling us the truth about himself, the truth about us, and about the world that we live in. That he tells us why we're here, what our purpose is, how we can go about living in the best possible way, how to relate to him, how to relate to each other. He tells us why we're here, but he also tells us why things are so screwed up why it's so hard to do the things that he says even relatively simple things like love your neighbor as yourself he tells us why it's so hard to treat other people all the time in every way like you wish you were treated all the time in every way he tells us why you can know what is good and right to do and yet struggle to actually want to do that. In Scripture, God traces all of these problems in our relationships at a horizontal level back to a break in relationship with himself. That's the whole argument of Romans chapter 1, that having rejected God as the center of my life, I'm always going to choose something else. But if I don't want the Creator, I have to choose something out of the creation. And it's that exchange, choosing something in the world that he's made instead of him, it's that exchange that leads to all of our personal and societal disconnects. It's that we love something more than we love the greatest lover that there ever has been. It's that we fix our minds and our hearts on this other thing and that we no longer can relate to other people as glorious images of God, we can't consistently keep giving to others because we're now looking to get this thing and we use others in order to get this thing from them. God tells us why we're here. He tells us why it's so hard to do what he says. But then he goes on to tell us that he doesn't leave us there in that mess. He takes pity on us. You hear that at the very first sign of rebellion way back in the Garden of Eden. He promised to send us his Messiah to rescue us from ourselves. So not denying Jesus, not denying his name, means that you are happy now to say, Jesus is this one that God promised. He's the one who came to this earth. He's the one who opens the door now to having a redeveloped relationship with God that now allows me to connect and interact well with the people around me. And so keeping Christ's word means that you let every part of Scripture, as it's all connected to the testimony of Jesus, the story of Jesus, you let every part of Scripture now shape how you think about everything in life. That Scripture becomes the lenses through which you view life, through which you interpret life. It's the guide that tells you how to navigate life. It's your set of instructions on how to live life. It's your marching orders for what you do in life. It's the thing that supersedes every other influence that you have in your life. And that everything else, everything that you've ever been taught, everything that people think, everything that people do, now gets run through the grid of Scripture, evaluated by Scripture. You keep His Word. That's what it means to be faithful. It seems so obvious, right? And yet you realize this is really hard to do. It's something that the church has always wrestled with down through the last 2,000 years. Why is that? It's because our environment 
really exerts a strong influence on us. It teaches us to think certain ways. It teaches us to value certain things. And those thoughts and values go unquestioned because what? They, they just seem obvious. You don't even have to argue for them. They are just obviously true. We grew up with them. We're surrounded by them. And then they impact how we view Scripture. They become the lens through which we see and analyze Scripture. Let me give you an example. In the late 1800s, early 1900s, the church in the U U.S. wrestled with the ideas of modernism and naturalism. Those were the dominant philosophical ideas of the time. And the church found herself in this uncomfortable place with her society, having to figure out what should she do now. The reason for that is because naturalism is the belief that everything in the universe is the product of purely natural causes or, or has purely natural properties. And so anything supernatural, anything spiritual, any understanding of that kind is always invalid. It's ruled out of court before you even start. And as those ideas percolated in American society, large segments of the church said, wow, we, we're becoming irrelevant to our world. No one believes in miracles anymore. Everything's natural. We are enlightened people. We've bought in. We're children of the enlightenment. What do we need to do then as a church? We need to adjust our beliefs and adjust our doctrines if we want to reach modern people. And so they started looking at Scripture through the lens of culture rather than the other way around, looking at culture through the lens of Scripture. And they used the ideas of their culture to start getting rid of parts of Scripture. They argued that you have to treat the miraculous sections of the Bible in a special kind of way. That pre-modern people were what? They were more used to a supernatural world. They talked in those kinds of ways. That those parts of the Bible are culture-bound, and that the writers were talking about something using the language of their culture to describe it. And so modern people needed to do what? They're from a different culture. They had to get below the thing that the pre-modern people were talking about to the thing itself, to what it really means, so that we can then pull out of it some kind of spiritual value for us today. And so they said, you have to look at parts of the Bible as figurative, allegorical, or just a mere human creation. And so preachers, theologians, authors, lay people decided that things like Jesus' virgin birth, our sins being transferred to him and him paying for them on the cross, rising from the dead, that those things didn't really happen because they could not have happened. And yet, they said, there are still valuable lessons there that we can draw from those things as we live our lives. And so large sections of the church modified what they believed in order to keep up with the times. Now, just as an aside here, pre-modern people had just as much trouble with miracles as modern people do. When Joseph found out that Mary was pregnant by the Holy Spirit, he had to have a visit from an angel to convince him that Mary wasn't running around behind his back on him. He knew where babies come from. He knew that this is not the way that this normally happens, was going to put her aside. He was not easily given to believing in miracles. You watch the disciples struggle to believe that Jesus actually rose from the dead. They're not any more gullible than modern people. They didn't expect anyone to rise from the dead. 
but vast segments of the church running down every denominational line in this country bought into these ideas. If you study church history, this is called the fundamentalist modernist controversy. And it was a split through all of the denominations because the underlying ideas, what? They percolated up from the culture and just felt compelling. Compelling to no longer believe in miracles. Compelling to cut those sections out of the Bible. Compelling to explain them away. So compelling, whole segments of the church capitulated and allowed culture to inform how they read scripture. In other words, they did not follow the example of the Church of Philadelphia. And if you study the history of the churches that embraced modernism, it's very depressing. It's a study in decline of churches shutting down, losing members, dying out. Which makes sense. When you jettison a supernatural God who breaks into your world to do for you what you cannot do for yourself, when you get rid of that kind of God, what are you left with? You're left with the ethics of Christianity. You're left with its morality. But you've lost the engine that makes the ethics and the morality possible. And so over time, those churches have been dying out. Now, let me urge you and me toward humility. Because it's easy to see what's wrong when you stand outside of a certain historical moment. It's easy to see in the rearview mirror how the culture impacted the church, what it believed and did 100 years ago. It's harder to see inside our own cultural moment. It's always harder. I would suggest that we're going through a very similar shakeup in the church today. It's no longer around the issue of miracles, around whether a modern person can believe in a God who breaks into our world and does miraculous things. The issue is no longer about God and his activity. The issue is about humans, about the image of God. And the issue of our day revolves around issues of identity, around what is at the core of a human being. What does it mean to be an authentic self? And you all know what the flashpoints are. They're around the issues of gender, of manhood and womanhood, what it means to be male and female. They're around issues of sex and sexuality, of how and well, when you express yourself as a sexual being. And they're around race and ethnicity, of the vast diversity of our one species. Which one do we hold over the other? And if you look around at the church, church with a capital C, it's already divided in how we think and act based on what we hear in our culture. And if you listen really carefully, you'll hear some people arguing that there are parts of the Bible that are outdated, that are products of a, the culture of their time, that those sections of Scripture need to be what? They need to be updated, understood differently, so that Scripture now says something that it doesn't say when you just read it. Something, oddly enough, that lines up with how our larger society is thinking about men and women, sex and sexuality, race and ethnicity. Someone has suggested, and I, I don't remember who this is, I'd give them credit. Someone has suggested that our present historical moment is likely to have as great an impact on the church as the fundamentalist modernist controversy did a hundred years ago. Now, why is that? Why could something split and divide us in our churches, split and divide our denominations now? It's because the arguments make sense to us. We're embedded in them. We don't feel any 
cultural historical distance from them they just what they feel right to us it's so easy then to allow that to impact the way that we read scripture and just to ignore the parts that they feel wrong to not keep the word of Christ and to not be faithful and so this is a call to us to true discipleship to following Christ it means that we work hard to take in his word to allow Jesus to challenge how we think to adopt his thoughts even when we don't fully understand all his reasons because we've learned to trust him when he speaks to us because we have never found anyone who has done nearly as much for us as he has he's proven we can trust him when he says something and he's proven that we need to because he thinks it's something we need to hear and so we need to be people who work hard to hold on to his word to keep it so that we don't deny his name that's point one what we need to be faithful in point two faithful for what what's the payoff in being faithful it's a really important question because being faithful to Jesus will get us in trouble here it'll get us in trouble with our society it'll get us in trouble with our culture regardless of what our culture is we will have to patiently endure things that we don't really want to endure so why would we do that go back to verse 7 Jesus says to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write the words of the Holy One who has the key of David who opens and no one will shut who shuts and no one opens now like so much of Revelation that's nearly a direct quote that's taken from the Old Testament in this case it's from the prophet Isaiah back in chapter 22 and in Isaiah God is speaking about a man named Eliakim Eliakim was a steward he was an administrator in the Israelite palace he was a man that God chose specially and he says to him verse 22 of chapter 22 I will place on his shoulder the key to the house of David what he opens no one can shut and what he shuts no one can open this means that Eliakim had access to the palace and to the king not simply for himself but it was through Eliakim that you either got to see the king or it was because of Eliakim that you didn't he had the key to the house of David not to a physical building but to the descendants of David as they sat on the throne of David Eliakim controlled access to the king he decided who saw the king and who didn't and it's that key that Jesus says he now holds now if you've been tracking with us you may remember that in chapter 1 Jesus said I hold the keys to death and Hades death no longer rules over people Jesus now rules over people here he's extending what that rule means that it's now extended with the key of David that Jesus now grants or denies access to the kingdom of God to God himself and so Jesus is saying to the Christians in ancient Philadelphia the ethnic Jews can decide whether or not you can meet in their synagogue but they do not decide whether or not you meet with God Jesus decides that he opens or shuts the door and he says to them I've opened the door I have guaranteed that you right now have access to God that even though you have little power you are welcome into the presence of the greatest power that there is they can walk right into the throne room of the king 
the king whose power spoke everything into being. This small, unimpressive group of people are told now they can go to this king any time that they like. That's their right, that's their privilege. Because that's the door that Jesus opened for them. They can do that right now, and then Jesus promises there's something coming that's even better for all eternity. Verse 12. The one who conquers, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. When you sort out all that he's saying there, Jesus is offering primarily two things. He's offering security, and he's offering identity. Take security first. He will make faithful people a pillar in the temple of his God. Now, don't think of a pillar here as something that supports something else. That's not the image. Instead, it's about standing firm in a fixed location. It's about always being in God's presence, never excluded from him, never kicked out, never sent away. It's about eternal permanence, about Jesus promising to use that key to make sure that you have permanent security, a place with the most powerful God. That's the first piece, promises you security. And he promises you a permanent identity that you are now connected to this God by a new name. A name that says you belong to God, a name that says you have citizenship rights in the New Jerusalem, doesn't matter who you are, doesn't matter how much power you have, and a name that connects you to Jesus himself. Jesus promises security and he promises identity. Two things that the ancient Philadelphians knew were really special. This city was founded as a missionary city. The intention was to introduce the Greek Hellenistic way of life to Asia Minor. That was their identity. They were missionaries. It's who they were tied to. But it was not a very secure identity. They built the city very near a seismic fault line. The area was susceptible to earthquakes. One of them was so bad, destroyed so much of the city in 17 AD that the Roman emperor at the time said, you guys don't have to pay taxes for a period of time so that you have extra money to actually rebuild the city. In gratitude, the people gave their city a new name. They gave it a new identity. They called the city Neo Caesarea, which means new city of Caesar. Here's an identity for them that's now tied to the emperor. In an insecure world, that seemed like a new secure identity. Here was someone that they could trust Someone who would come in to help rescue them when they got in trouble. Someone that didn't last. Later, around the time Revelation was written, another Caesar ordered that half of their vineyards be chopped down and that they grow grain instead. Soil around the city, however, was not good for growing grain. And so Caesar's decree undermined their security, undermined their economy. So what do the Philadelphia Christians know? They know this world is insecure. Earthquakes threaten life and property. Social movements can ostracize you, kick you out of where you used to be welcome. Politicians can be fickle. The history of their city showed that there is nothing on this planet that will give you lasting security. 
You can actually learn that by studying the history of any city, any nation. And so what Jesus offers them is highly prized. Security and an identity that is firmly forever attached to the most powerful ruler in the universe. Someone who actually thinks well of them. Someone who wants them to be with him. Now that's a promise for the future, but don't think of this as, okay, that's nice when I die. Okay, this is not some opiate of the masses. Instead, that future promise helps you live right now in this world because it gives you an anchor in this insecure, dangerous, and fickle world that allows you to then to live better, to live more radically than someone who does not have those promises. See, if you don't have a future, if all that you have is this world, then everything that you do has to be evaluated on the basis of whether or not you're likely to be successful here, on whether or not you can produce results in keeping with what you want to see happen. And so if I'm thinking like that and I read Scripture and I hear God say things, instead of immediately concluding that God's way is best, He knows what He's doing, I will start to ask myself, is that likely to give me an outcome that I really want? If I do that, if I believe that, if I say that, will the people at work think better of me? Or will they think worse? Will that lead me to getting on good projects, being part of good task forces, or am I going to get shut out of those? Should I hear that from God and keep it? Or should I hear that from God and get rid of it? because it's going to get me in trouble with the people all around me. See, if you don't have that future, if all that you have is the here and now, you won't keep Scripture. You won't hold tightly to it. You won't sit under God's authority. You'll sit over it. You'll be the one to decide if certain parts need to be tweaked, reframed, just ignored, so that you can fit better into the world that you want. You'll become pragmatic in the pursuit of being successful, and you will let faithfulness drift to the side. But friends, if you do that, you're still going to be unhappy, because this world will disappoint you. It will not give you the security that you crave. You'll experience the same kind of brokenness that the ancient Philadelphians did. You'll experience temporal insecurity, whether that's physical, social, political, but because you've put all your hope in this world, you're going to end up what? You're, you're going to end up discouraged, bitter, maybe angry, cynical, hopeless, because everything that you put your hope in just keeps coming up short. But if Jesus promises that being faithful is what matters, that not the results, and he promises that this is your guaranteed future, what's that do? It lets you enter into hard situations right now only concerned with keeping his word and not denying him. Because what? You can leave the results up to him. He's already told you where your future is. When you do that, oddly enough, that sets you free, actually, to be someone who works in this world to change it for better. You're going to end up doing more because you're not caught up in having to produce a certain outcome. So you won't have to have it all right now since Jesus has opened up the entire kingdom to you. 
That means you don't have to sacrifice your friends, you don't have to sacrifice your family for the sake of getting ahead in your career. You can invest in them instead. But you can invest in them without needing them or any other person to like your investment. Because you already have a relationship with a God that can't get any better. You can't lose that because Jesus has opened the door to you for that. And so now you can do and you can say what you think is actually going to be helpful for others without worrying about whether or not they receive it. Whether or not they're still going to want to be friends with you. You can risk people being unhappy with you. Not liking you. Not returning your love. You can afford to be absolutely other-centered. Not looking to get something from someone because your future is already settled. Because we don't have to work for that eternal security or identity. Christians actually have the ability to be the best citizens in this world. We're not always. There's many, many, many hundreds of years of church history that we have to apologize for. We're not always. But that's because we don't access the resources that we actually have. If we did, it frees us up to excel at loving and caring, extending ourselves to others because we're not consumed with how we'll be received here. We already know how we'll be received later. Can you imagine how differently you would live if you felt free to say and do exactly what you thought was right? If you stopped editing all the things that you were afraid that if you did or said would get you into trouble. That's what having a guaranteed future identity and security does for you. It makes you more all in here and now. And it's all possible because Jesus, your Eliakim, the one with the key of David, it's all because he paid a horrible price for that key that he now holds. I told you in Isaiah 22, God, tell, God chooses Eliakim. He tells us some other things about Eliakim. He tells us that he chooses Eliakim to be a father to everyone in Jerusalem, someone who will take care of all of them, but that he's going to be even more for his own relatives. Verse 23, God speaking, I will drive him like a peg into a firm place. They will hang on him all the glory of his father's family, the descendants and the offshoots, all the small vessels from the bowls to every kind of jar. Eliakim would end up supporting his entire family. He's the son who made good, who then turned around and helped everyone else who was related to him. Only God goes on, verse 25, and says it won't last. On that day, the peg that was driven into a firm place will give way, be cut off, and fall. And the load on it will be destroyed. Indeed, the Lord has spoken. Eliakim points forward to the Messiah. But Eliakim is not that Messiah. He could not bear the load. He could not bear the weight of his family. And when he was cut off, so was his family. They were destroyed. This is where Jesus is different. You and me were hung on him. In order to receive the key of David, he also had to receive us. And by receiving us as his family, he also took on the load 
of everything that comes with us, all of our sin, all of our wickedness, all of our faithlessness. And it meant that by taking us on, that he gave way. That he had to give way. That he had to die. That Jesus, the peg that holds all of us up, was cut off. That he was cut off and that when he fell, we fell with him because we're connected to him. That's what it means when Romans 6.3 talks about us being baptized into his death. That we were cut off with him in his death. But because he carried us even there, what we were cut off from was our sin, our faithlessness. Because it's also true, the very next verse, Romans 6, 4, that we were raised with him from death to new life. That when he rose, he carried his family with him in his resurrection so that we are not eternally destroyed. And all those who are faithful, not necessarily successful, but verse 11, who hold fast to what we have, to his word, to his name, those are the ones he promises security and identity and present access to the king himself. Let me invite you to take a few moments to